You're listening to No Borders Media News Roundup, recorded a few days after the U.S. midterm elections. Our panelists in this episode are Cindy Milstein, editor of Rebellious Morning, the collective work of grief, Andrew of It's Going Down, and me, Jaggy Singh of No Borders Media. Together, Cindy, Andrew, and I nerd out on U.S. politics from an anarchist perspective. We analyze the midterms, critique voting as harm reduction, and explore political trends of interest to people organizing for liberation. Cindy, who recently wrote the article, Our Grief is a Starting Point in the Fight Against Fascism, explores the weight of despair in this Trumpian moment, but also inspiring examples of solidarity and mutual aid. Andrew breaks down how Fox News host Tucker Carlson actively supports and enables white nationalism. And I make a case, again, against liberal civility and for radical authenticity in the struggle against the far right. Let's go to the latest No Borders Media News Roundup right now. Hey folks, it's Thursday, November 8th, two days after the midterms in the U.S. This is another podcast by No Borders Media, a news roundup. I have with me today Andrew from It's Going Down and Sydney Milstein, who is the editor of Rebellious Morning, The Collective Work of Grief, and many other books. Cindy and Andrew, welcome to No Borders Media. Thanks Hello. for having us. Um, maybe maybe we can just get some quick intros, and I'll introduce myself too. Maybe I'll start. This is Jaggy Jaggy Singh, and I'm the producer here at No Borders Media, and someone as Andrew knows who likes the U.S. not not the military, not the government, <laughs> not the history of colonialism and imperialism. But I really like hearing about the resistance and the histories of that. Mexican food. Well, we got some good food here too, but. All of it. So I'm I'm one of those counter counterintuitive uh, Canadians, I guess. Uh, Cindy, how about you? Any intros or anything you want to share with us uh, as we get started here? Oh yeah, yeah. I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know what else to share. <laughs> you could Cindy's say he's an amazing author and writer. No, Everybody no, should no. check out their books. No. Okay. Just Please published a. To... <laughs> yeah, we'll do we'll do Cindy's <laughs> intro. Uh, 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 editor of uh, Rebellious Morning, Collective Work of Grief, and we'll be talking about one of the pieces Cindy wrote related to that book, um, I think, uh, uh, recently in Truth Out, uh, author of Anarchism and His Aspirations, and uh, Intrepid Traveler, all over the place. We'll be talking about that as yeah. well. And how about you, Andrew? Yeah, I guess that's by way of introduction, I'll just also say I've been uh, doing a lot of um, opening up space for people to talk about sort of what's going on politically and how they're feeling about it. Um, using that anthology rebellious morning and i've been to oh i don't know probably 60 different cities over the past year or more and especially in recently um kind of just really seeing both uh, the intensity of sort of what's taking hold in the united states really struck me in the last three weeks so. yeah we'll we'll get into that in some detail and andrew any thoughts to share as we start out um you know, it's going to be a busy couple of weeks here in the U.S. There's a lot of anti-fascist uh, activity coming up over the next couple of weeks. You know, we're going to talk about some of it, but I'm I'm just excited to see people get back into the streets and kind of shake off this midterm, you know, malaise that we've put ourselves into, and um, yeah, just get back to the task of you know building our own movements, but also uh, not you know succumbing to just this endless cycle of just shock and awe and and grief and just you know looking having to look at trump all the time well and as you say that i'm ready to bring you right back into the <laughs> midterm malaise because it was only two days ago and 
I mean, the spirit of it is that you know these these spectacles of electoral politics have a difference in our make a difference in our lives. They're a barometer of where things are at. There's this shadow boxing going on, so to speak, where you know the grassroots movements have to relate in some way to what's happening, uh, for good or for worse. So. Let's get our thoughts on you know how we should assess these midterms. I guess maybe stepping away from the fact that generally I think, in varying degrees, we're anti-electoralist anarchists here, who aren't suggesting that we spend a lot of our time getting behind Democratic Party candidates. But at the same time, there's a lot of interesting political stuff going on with these midterms. So I'm not sure one of you wants to start about how to take in the results that came in on Tuesday night and on Wednesday morning. You I'll got- just I'll just go ahead and jump in. Yeah, and it's going down. We actually just. Uh, released a podcast that's an hour and a half about nerding out about the midterms from an anarchist perspective. So um, if you want to hear more about that, you know, you can go to itsgoingdown.org and check out our latest podcast. But I think the the big takeaways is that, you know, the the big things that happen is that the the states that went for Obama, you know, a couple cycles ago that went through went to Trump last time around 2016, they largely switched switched back to Democratic. So the you know the kind of the wild card factors that people always talked about are this kind of economic anxiety of Rust Belt workers, you know, that were trying to find something in Trump, or as Michael Moore would say, you know, throw a Molotov cocktail at neoliberalism. Um, you know, wanting to shake things up, you know, they went back to uh, the Democratic side, you know, after two years of Trumpism. Also, largely what a lot of people are reporting are that, um, you know, college-educated suburbanite uh, upper-middle-class white voters, by and large, turned on Trump and this time around uh, didn't vote for him, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, very clearly after the tax cut was passed. But, um yeah, so that was the major change. I think by and large this wasn't like a, you know, pitchforks and torches election. You know, there wasn't massive turnout of like poor and working class people. I think that both the bases of the DNC and the Republican Party were energized. I think if anything, you know, the masses of people that came out early to vote cuz in some states they started this new thing where you could go vote early. Uh, you know, obviously there was a ton of millennials that came out in some cases there was like you know upwards of like 400 percent more than before uh people just were voting you know to stop trumpism from working hopefully you know that's really what they were voting for was just something that was going to block the state and um you know predictably already we're seeing the democrats move to you know try to make bipartisan agreements with the republicans and everything like that so, you know, I think that the Democrats also tried to do this dance where they were uh, paying lip service to what they said ideas were like big ideas. I mean, so, for instance, like Fight for 15, which, you know, in the States started to really become a movement about five years ago. And now the idea that $15 an hour in some cities is, is a living wage is just even more of a joke. And, um, you know, them saying that they're going to fight for things like Medicaid for all, you know, after the Democrats basically put up no fight for this latest tax bill, which is, you know, supposedly next year is going to lay the groundwork for the Republicans to gut Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security. Um, 
yeah, I don't know how they would go about doing that being, you know, just everything as it is that they've basically allowed to happen. I mean, just today, uh, Trump's new attorney general, they announced that they're um, ending the asylum program for people that come into the United States illegally. So if you if you don't come if you come into the U.S. outside of just a certain area and declare amnesty, then they're just going to deport you. They're ending that right now. So, I mean, just the the assaults from Trump are just, you know, ongoing. And he's just going to continue to do that as much as possible. But, I mean, it's clear that that he is afraid of just the, the powers that the Democrats in the House do have now. And what they're going to do with that remains to be seen. Cindy, um... I'm calling on your inner pundit here because I know how you feel about elections in general, but uh, any thoughts about how, how all of this played out? I saw some of your posts on social media about people buying into sort of the identity politics of this because during this election there there was, I mean, the first two Muslim women were elected, one of whom wears hijab, two Native, women, uh, Native American women were elected, other sort of firsts that happened that in, you know, in symbolic identity politics um, – does reach some people or influences people kind of like Obama becoming president, but from our politics, yeah. having, having these folks uh, in power isn't necessarily a good thing, but are, are there thoughts you have about, uh, about these, uh, these midterms? Yeah, I guess I'm going to take a different angle on it. I'm not from the sort of perspective of um, how people voted or the parties, but um, I guess I'm always left sort of what is, what is this sort of saying about what the mood is going on here right now? And um um, on the one hand, um, I I think the intensity of the feeling around sort of almost almost the sense of um, the midterms being so pivotal in as some kind of crossroads <laughs> or whether kind of fascistic tendencies could be halted or not on the part of um, you know not um, mostly like liberals and party people, but in general there was just. I mean, because that's a, a, like I said, I was traveling around a lot and talking to a lot of people, and I was just really struck, struck by how much weight people were giving to this moment, um, as both a barometer and potentially a way to sort of slow down what's happening in order to give more breathing room, which is a better way of putting um, the thing that a lot of people were using, which instead of lesser of two evils, was harm reduction, which I found disturbing. Um, um, not only um, the switch to harm reduction because that was taken from um, more like social justice and movement um, phrasing, but um, also because it feels like the elections, like always, but this one in particular felt extremely like sort of a Sophie's choice of, you know, do you, which ones of your children do you send send off to be exterminated? Um, And so I, but I feel like that there was this palpable feeling of like, we are at such an intense moment here in the so-called United States, um, which feels almost like there's already some sort of low-grade civil war going on and, and, you know, most people feeling maybe people that aren't radicals not being able to call it fascism, but feeling like things are palpably different. Um, And the number of people that have gotten politicized over the past two years um, and has been pretty phenomenal. There's so many people new to doing different forms of organizing and activism and from electoral politics to on the ground. And um, so I guess for me, what this showed was that people, there's so many people getting newly politicized and they're coming in through movements like around 
women's issues or trans issues or queer issues or, you know, all the things that every week are under assault, um, you know, um, all the ways that all the different kinds of identities every week, a different one is, is being faced with assault, you know, Muslims one week, Jews another week, queers the next week. And so you also really saw people, I think, really wanting to, in a sense, those movements were embodied to some degree in who got elected in, in historic numbers. Um, but I also think this election spoke to the profound despair that people don't, I, I was less convinced that most people thought these elections were actually going to stop what's happening, more just out of despair of not knowing what else to do. Um, so as as an anarchist, I feel like to some degree, not that we have the power to do this, but I also feel like it pointed to the failing, our failings over the past two years. Um, um, the failure for instance, of our sort of our analysis of, of what is happening to the state um, to keep up with what's actually happening <laughs> um, in a way that would actually be able to be a poll and enough of a description that people would have a sense of that there actually are alternatives. And um, I know this, it just disheartened me a lot to see a lot of anarchists doing a lot more active sort of campaigning work for this election. But again, I just also feel like that comes out of a sense of despair of and wanting to try to do everything possible to stop fascism. And to me, what happened sort of within the, the next morning afterward, it felt like we'd swiftly gone from um, what was not so interesting outcome to me um, to um, an interim period in which now it seems far more clear that we're in um, something. I don't know what the term could be called, whether we want to call it fascism or not, but we're in we're in something that's moving really fast between now and the technical time when people take office, this interim period feels really scary <laughs> from my perspective um, in terms of just the, the swiftness with which Trump is creating propaganda from the white house to make up his own news about what happened, even though there's actual footage and the number of people that believe that him saying reporters can't even cover the most boring facts within the white house anymore. And um, to, um, to the swiftness of getting rid of the attorney general who was already bad, but appointing one who's, who's profoundly worse. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. The whole thing feels uh, the weight of despair right now, I think in this, in this uh, part of the world is pretty great. Um, I know a lot of people who do a lot of door to door work who aren't necessarily anarchists, but are, are newly politicized and social Democrats and all sorts of, and some anarchists too for different referendum items. And I just heard a lot of people talking about, you know, the, the, also the huge numbers of people that aren't, aren't not voting for no reason. They're not voting because they understand that it's beyond the capacity of any kind of electoral politics to even slow down what's going on. So, yeah, I don't mean to kind of <laughs> come back to despair, but I just feel like there's a real sense of things are moving so, so fast and none of us really have answers to how to address what happens when you're moving into a time of uh, fascism. Well, I'll channel my uh, inner pundit right now before getting on to some maybe topics of, of more interest. But in terms of these midterms, I think there was there was this feeling that maybe there would have been, um, again, purely within the realm of electoral politics, some sort of blue wave, you know, a democratic wave. Uh, people tend to say that um, when there's a midterm in the first term of a, of a president, that tends to be a time when um, other movements can emerge. So people refer back to when the Tea Party sort of got a lot of uh, 
I got a lot of people elected back in 2010 or Newt Gingrich and the contract on America uh, contract of America I forget what he called it back in 94 this was two years into the Clinton and the Obama administrations but clearly there wasn't a blue wave um, uh, you know the Democrats lost some key seats uh, the Senate's still there I mean <clears throat> Trump the centrist Democrats the left-wing Democrats nobody can claim a clear victory and I guess just to play off of what you were just saying, Cindy, um, uh, another pundit, uh, Arun Gupta, who I've spoken with here on um, No Borders Media, he had a, a good uh, resume of how this all played out. He, he wrote, uh, history is going to ask, is this the best the Democrats can do? After two years of Muslim bans, calls to shoot refugees, white nationalism, violent brown shirts, concentration camps for children, proposals to eliminate transgendered people, racist massacres, the elevation of sexual predators, rampant militarism, war crimes, trillions of dollars of theft, accelerating climate catastrophe, and the loathsome fascist slime turd that is Trump, this is the best <laughs> the Democrats can do. So again, you know, taking ourselves out of our anarchist uh, role or hats or what have you, there was a huge opening <laughs> to take this on and maybe show something, and it clearly, clearly did not happen. Um, but I think, I think that really gets to the heart of like what's happening with 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 establishment politics in the U.S. Because the Republicans are literally at a point where, and they say this, they have to rely on gerrymandering, they have to rely on voter ID laws, they have to rely on. I mean, if you look at Georgia, they literally kicked like half and like upwards of you know hundreds of thousands of people off the voting rolls. You know, the guy that was monitoring the election was also the same guy that was, you know, the Republican candidate that was doing, you know, kicking people off. I mean, Chris Kobach, who basically engineered um, this this program called Voter ID Crosscheck, and we've talked about this on our podcast before with journalists like Greg Paulus, but um, he's a white nationalist. I mean, he comes out of the think tank of uh, you know, Federation for American Immigration Reform. So, I mean, he, he's been over the past couple of elections, he's been helping Republican candidates run these programs where basically they, they run to see if somebody has the same first and last name across a series of states. And if they do, they send somebody in, in one state, um, you know, a little, little flyer and they said, Hey, is this you? Like, Write this in. Most people look at it as, as you know, junk mail. And they throw it away, and then they get kicked off the rolls. I mean, there's lots of other things that they've done, but I mean, that's how the Republicans have been able to stay, um, you know, in the game in some areas. And then other rural areas, you know, they're the only political party in town, really. And then the the Democrats have basically just continued to run because you know. <laughs> They're the opposition party to the to the Republicans. I mean, that's the only reason. I mean, look at somebody like Nancy Pelosi, who's going to be the uh, you know the speaker of of the House of Representatives. I mean, famously, like somebody from the DSA a couple months ago said, um, you know, why won't you challenge capitalism? And Nancy Pelosi's response was, well, we're just capitalists. That's the way it is. You know, it's just like. You know that it's like you know old guard. You know, not going to change. Um, but still like people continue to, you know, some people continue to vote for these people, but I mean, it's, it's nothing really out of the ordinary from any other country. I mean, it's, it's the same, but I mean, there's reasons there's like institutional structural reasons why this stuff happens. It's not just because, you know, that's what the population wants per se. I mean, if you look at, you know, polls and, 
and everything. I mean, most people want universal health care. Most people want free education, of course. You know, most people want, you know, uh, secured, you know, employment and how access to housing and all this stuff. And I mean, most people's real concerns are, you know, working class everyday issues. Most people are concerned about the environment and global warming and don't want to die on a fiery death ball, you know, in space. I mean, so, but yeah, at the same time, it is, it is very scary. I think if, if there's one thing that anarchists, you know, we didn't really factor in a lot was just that the center was going to be the center so hard. I mean, that's one thing that I'm really thinking about lately because I mean, the Democrats, I think a lot of people thought that the Democrats were going to put up a fight and really try to stop some of the stuff that Trump did. And of course they didn't. And I think that, that the social movements and people being out on the streets did a really good job of fighting right off the gate. But as time went on the center more and more like up and like right up until the elections, which, you know, of course really worked in their favor, you know, they really won with the narrative of civility of, you know, being the better person of, of not succumbing to like what Trump was. And like now, like you have this thing where like a handful of people went and protest outside of Tucker Carlson's house. And it's been, it's been presented in the news as like the worst thing that's ever happened. You know, after two weeks of literally like nonstop white nationalist, you know, murder and death, which this person has basically mainstreamed. So, (laughs) which is really dangerous because that's such a situation where the only way that change is going to happen is not only through the ballot box, but through the Democratic Party, but also moreover. Uh, it sets up, you know, demonizing any sort of social movement or any sort of social struggle that's going to go outside of the bounds of the law. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the other part of the structural shifts that have happened in the last, I mean, last few years, too, is that there's just increasingly quick and vicious uh, crackdown on dissent. Um, I mean, the J20 case was an example on Inauguration Day where people were facing almost 80 years in, in jail, almost 200 people. And um, so far those charges are, they are um, dropped for now. They can be picked up again for about five more years, but they're basically dropped for now. But that was only a couple months ago. So that's taken a lot of you know time to fight, but also a lot of people that's happened time and time again since then. And all sorts of examples when people ripped down tr- or tried to rip down monuments or, um, you know, done all sorts of other things that aren't electoral, um, even the most um, sort of what we consider sort of mundane kind of protesting has been met with with far more sort of aggressive um, repression. Um, so people get scared, <laughs> which um, and the other thing is here, it's it is increasingly scary for people to go out and to demonstrations to um, to political moments because fascists come out and they murder people. Um, whether that's in Charlottesville um, or in in places when people are in, um, you know, places where they're not protesting, but they're trying to do social justice work through churches, um, synagogues, um, mosques. Um, So, yeah, I think the stakes feel higher for people in terms of what it means to be political. Um, On the one hand, even though there are more and more people that are political, um, which doesn't mean necessarily that they have a systemic critique, but I'm, I'm really struck by just more and more folks, especially younger folks that are, 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 are feeling like they want something different, but then it's hard to figure out how to do that. Um, 
And uh, the other thing I was going to say about um, the recent um, midterm elections and the Democrats versus the Republicans is, um, you know, there's many a good article that explains structurally that there isn't so much difference between the two parties on on things like, you know, economic justice, racial justice, sort of just justice barometers in terms of public policy. Um, but there's also um, plenty of examples of when you start moving toward authoritarian regimes is everyone moves to a toward almost everything starts shifting further and further toward the right. And what is possible becomes increasingly narrower. So it, it's not particularly a surprise that the Democrats are moving more and more to um, less and less. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't have expected them to be any counter to, to the um, Republican Party um, in, a, in a way to get elected. It means um, to move sh- to shift more and more to the right. And the last thing I want to say is media has changed so much. Um, people can be completely mm-hmm. in their own isolated media bubbles. I mean, the, what people consider reality depends on what Twitter feed they're listen- watching or what, um, you know, what other social media they look at. And I feel like more and more we're living in a society that has people that are almost living in parallel, but completely different realities of the exact same events. Um, And that happens almost instantaneously now. So, yeah, so that's, I think that's been a big deal in terms of also the midterm elections or anything past it is every time something happens within minutes, there's completely different understanding of what has happened. Before um, before leaving this topic of the midterms and getting into some other topics, there's one thing I want to I want to sort of address. It's been alluded to by Andrew a bit, but it's this idea of voter suppression. You know, it's easy for me as this abstentionist anarchist living in, living in Montreal <laughs> to sort of you know scowl and say what the hell. I mean, but if I was in Georgia or if I was in Florida. As an anarchist, this stuff would piss me off because of the history going right back to post-Civil War of trying to deprive black people and other minorities, but mainly black folks, the ability to vote. I mean, literally at Standing Rock. I mean, literally at the Standing Rock Reservation, they said they were telling people like, oh, you can't vote because your your address isn't on the ID. Well, tribal IDs don't have an address on them. Yeah. So they know exactly what they're doing. I mean, and this is and what's ironic is that, you know, the Democratic Party are the ones that really, you know, through Jim Crow uh, were the ones that, you know, began these little tactics of, you know, well, you got to have a hat on Tuesday if you're going to vote, you know, or whatever. And, uh, you know, now it's coming around to, you know, completely, you know, disenfranchise entire groups of people. Yeah, I mean. Obviously, our dreams don't fit in their ballot boxes, and I can name <laughs> I can name all these other cliches. But if I was an anarchist in Georgia or Florida, I'd be out there fighting this suppression mm-hmm. and maybe even popping a ballot for you know Stacey Abrams, this uh, black woman who obviously she's she's not going to create the revolution, but she is significantly different than this fucking uh, redneck who's playing with white nationalism in Kemp. But and all of that, there was, it seems, in terms of voter suppression, some good news. I think the only piece of good news that I could take, which is in Florida, there was an amendment, like one of these referendums that you do in these, in these elections, and Amendment 4 passed, which opens up the possibility of upwards of 1 million people who have felony convictions on their record being able to vote, because right now they're, they're deprived of the right to vote, even if they've served their their term. And that's pretty fucking huge. If those people could have voted in this past election, some of those results would have been different. So 
I don't know. I just right. throw that out because no, you know it just it's yeah, just so I, I flagrant. I would agree with you. Like, I, I feel like the anarchists sort of like, I'll never vote. I, I, you know, it's it's all the same. It's never any different is um, not particularly interesting. <laughs> like, I hope we don't become that dogmatic that we have these like, I will never kind of statements um, because there's there's time, place and context. And um, and to me, what's more disturbing is, is when anarchists become cheerleaders for electoral politics and spend a lot of time um you know, talking about different candidates or doing campaigning or, um, you know, et cetera. But in the, yeah, no, I mean, there were plenty of examples in this election, like there are in every here, um, at the, especially at the micro level of, of, uh, cities and counties, um, and, um, different states of especially referenda items or things that are, have some, would actually make qualitative differences in certain ways. Um, and I think that up often gets, gets lost. Um, I think the hard part this time is a lot of those, uh, a lot of those little kind of like where I live, there was a referendum, 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 (laughs) excuse me, um, to try to sort of halt some luxury development and um, kind of a hodgepodge of different um, folks in town had put it on the ballot. And uh, it was to uh, stop a development by arguing that it should become sort of a commons and turn into a park and, um, some kind of civic space and mostly the progressives voted against it because the developer is offering a tiny bit of what they say is market rate housing, which is um, unaffordable for anyone. It's not affordable housing at all. The developer is saying, Oh, look, we're giving you some affordable housing. And so I was really struck by even in, in cases where there might be some reasons to vote (laughs) like that, that, that referendum item um, um, that it becomes um, really seductive for Democrats to kind of go along with what they think are the crumbs from neoliberalism and vote against it. Um, that actually won. I, I don't quite know how, <laughs> um, but, um, but, or that not enough people even spend the time to sort of understand, um, you know, some of the like historical reasons you might want to end up voting for something specific in a specific time in a specific place. Which, again, I think yeah. as anarchists would be more helpful if we talked, here's where I live and here's what's happening and here's what I think is important in terms of how we might engage in this moment without spending a lot of time becoming like a campaign worker, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I have another example of just kind of along the same lines that Cindy was talking about. But, you know, recently um, Black Rose Federation in the U.S. put out this article. And I don't, I'm not saying this to harp on them or anything like that, but – you know, uh, they were talking about in California, there's uh, Proposition 10, which would essentially repeal um, a law that went into place in the 1990s. And all the law would do would it, is that it would make it uh, legally OK for local governments, so towns and cities and counties and stuff like that, to pass rent control ordinances, you know, which, you know, rent control, you know, great. <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody, honestly, in today's, you know, world where rent is going up is going to like you know uh be against that but at the same time i think if you if you logically follow that if you say like okay well we're going to campaign over prop 10 which of course didn't pass you know the the landlords you know poured tens of millions of dollars i mean there's huge stories about how they tried to uh screw up uh the campaign for prop 10 in their favor which you know ultimately they won um but i mean if if so, if that passed, then you would have to begin an electoral strategy on a local level and all these other governments to try to get rent control passed. And then, 
in order to do that, to actually go up against the power and the money of, you know, the landlord class, which they have a lot of, I mean, what would that necessitate? It would necessitate connections to political parties, funders. I mean, then all of a sudden, I mean, you might as well become, you know, the major nonprofits that we're always complaining about. When in reality, if you look at what's happening in places like California, especially Southern California, there's been waves and waves of successful rent strikes uh, organized by tenants, you know, just like in the Pacific Northwest and like up up in Canada, too. There's been a lot of rent strikes that have been happening. So I think this kind of goes back to the heart of what you're talking about, where I think is anarchists. You know, and I think people have been saying this more and more, but look, it doesn't matter what we do as individuals on election day. It doesn't matter. Like if you want to vote, it takes, you know, five seconds in the U.S. You can get an absentee ballot. You can send it in. Um, You know, whether or not those will be counted is another story. But I mean, if you want to vote, whatever, (laughs) if you don't, fine. But I mean, I think that that we really have to think about um you know, like the situations like with voter suppression, other things like what would it what's the anarchist statement in the face of that? And also, like, how do we articulate that what we're trying to do is create collective uh, social movements and struggles to use direct action to better our lives and our conditions and create a different world as opposed to just these piecemeal reforms that continuously change over every cycle and I mean, you know, you brought up the the thing in Florida. I think that's great. But from what I understand, <laughs> the guy that, that put that into place, he got elected. You know, so I mean, are are the Republicans then going to turn around and try to pass another law to like push that back? Like in some states, there was um, some ordinances that expanded Medicare and Medicaid, which again is great. But then at the same time, uh, you know, a Republican governor would get elected. So again, it's a toss up of really kind of, you know, on one hand you see like some progressive stuff being passed, but then on the other hand, it could just be a total, you know, fight, uh, you know, through the courts that could end up with people getting nothing. So we know that if we fight, we have the chance to win. But if we just sit here on our hands and wait for rich people and politicians to try to give us something, we're not going to get anything and with climate change you know a reality you know we only have a certain amount of time yeah i also feel like this was uh, like what you're talking about andrew in terms of all the structural reasons why um even if you believe in voting (laughs) in terms of voting in terms of electoral politics um there's so many structural reasons why huge percentages of the votes may not count or be or be counted or why certain people can't vote and because of things like the Electoral College, even if whole states vote, it sometimes doesn't even count <laughs> because of, of how the Electoral College ends up functioning. Um, so increasing the analysis, I think, would be interesting, especially, you know, of, of sort of structurally, um, what is that point to in terms of what's shifting? I, I, I Maybe I want to come back to this point because I feel like, for me, this has been really haunting me this year is um, – we even even us anarchists still seem to sort of believe that we're in some um, highly disturbing form, but still a form of a constitutional um, democracy. And we may not actually even be in that form anymore um, if all the actual on the ground sort of structures don't allow for 
even that system, which we may not like to function, <laughs> um, you know, increasingly it's, um, you know, one, I know one reason a lot of people were really concerned about wanting to vote in this midterm is they're really, really concerned about who's going to be appointed to judges, which might actually be more important if you're worried about, um, um, ramifications, um, is who gets appointed to judges, especially judgeships that are for life. And, um, and Ruth, Bader Ginsburg, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg fell down yesterday and broke her ribs, yeah. and everybody was thinking, yeah. oh, my God, if she uh, she can't serve or yeah. dies, then Trump's yeah. got a third appointment. Yeah, but then you have an administration. I don't want to just focus on Trump because he couldn't do all this if there wasn't a, you know, the banality of evil bureaucracy behind him, um, but it, and, and potentially a military behind him, um, is are we even structurally in a point where he even cares about whether there's any law? You know, again, as anarchists, we could say, okay, we don't like the Supreme Court. We don't like the constitution. We don't like a, a rep, you know, a representative democracy, but I'm not even sure we're increasingly even in that. Um, so to my mind more, we need to not, it actually behooves us more than ever to start putting out and, and practicing um, different forms of um, how people would, um, decide their own lives together collectively and how they would provide everything they need for each other collectively, um, especially I, if we're moving into a time when it's more fascistic and we don't even, we actually, I feel like more and more the actors that are acting upon people, especially acting on people with extreme um, forms of institutional violence are acting outside of the state, um, supported by structures of white supremacy, which include the state. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, the, the every, there was yet another... Um, mass shooting in the United States yesterday, almost every day there's one, and almost always there by white male supremacists that are backed up by police, military, and, and structures of, of law. Yeah. But, I mean, I think, you know, I, I do think that, that that needs to be part of the conversation, um, you know, because, and, and again, I mean, I say this a lot personally, but I think we have to keep this in mind that, you know, like, like even still like, you know, the, the most important election of all time. I mean, like if you look at like, uh, like late night, uh, liberal commentators in the U S like Stephen Colbert, uh, you know, the daily show, so on and so forth. I mean, they just, they pump this thing so hard. Like yeah. the daily show did like a 30 minute interview with, um, the guy that was running for the democratic seat they in Florida. Imagine if they would have done that for like an, an abolish ice organizer or something like that. Right. Right. I mean, like they literally tried to pull out all the stops. I mean, and uh, I think the, you know, the amount of people that actually voted was like a third of the actual population of the United States. I mean, you know, it's still like, it's still, you know, a section of the population that still ends up voting. Um, and even still, if you look at, if if you were to actually ask the people, just like in the, the 2016 election, I mean, there was, you know, the vast majority of people, even the people that voted, were not even excited about the candidates they were voting for. And in some states, people were leaving the the largest majority of, you know, people that wrote in for president were actually leaving it blank because they weren't even voting for the president. They were just voting on everything else. Um, but I think that that as anarchists, we've got to really, you know, point to all these structural things and like, look, like this system doesn't even believe in this democracy that it's talking about. Like, this is all just a smoke and mirrors game. 
I mean, mm-hmm. you've literally got this whole structure that is constantly changing itself in order to acquiesce to like keep, you know, these people in power. Like you were saying, um, you know, depending on where you live, like the votes count less. Like there were if you if you just count the votes in terms of like where people voted, more people voted Democratic in the Senate, but still because of the way the system is set up you know, more Republicans won, which, I mean, how does that make any sense? Yep. Well, it's because, I mean, <laughs> oh. the whole voting system is based off of like, a, we live in a colonial yeah. system where the voting system is based off of, you know, making sure that, you know, Northern industrialists and like, you know, slaveholders can like get along and this, you know, it's, it's ridiculous, you know, like these systems are in place. They're never going to benefit, you know, poor working oppressed people. And, you know, if we're ever going to get beyond that, obviously, there's going to have to be some sort of rupture. And um, I think that also, too, like the elites know that that system is just getting more and more broken, which is why Trump is moving towards more of an autocratic framework. Because, I mean, (laughs) you know, what else are they going to do? They can't really sell this for that much longer. I mean, Trump's like locked in base is is only like white men over 45 like that's the only like demographic that's still like largely statistically speaking which is not even like everybody that's white and male over 45 is voting for trump but i mean based on the statistics that's one of the demographics he still has a, a holdover and i mean that's not going to last forever yeah. you know well just one thought and then maybe we can wrap up this part of the conversation on midterms and elections and stuff the thought is just to add to the you know, imagine if you, you mentioned, Andrew, imagine if uh, somebody who's part of Abolish Ice organizing got 30 minutes on a show like The Daily Show, whatever. Imagine, <laughs> imagine if uh, we just got 1% of the money that they're fucking spending on all this crap. It's just stunning the, the amounts of money being raised on both sides, but particularly by Democratic candidates. And if our movements just had 1% of that, we could just do so much with it. But I guess I'm going to end end this part of it with just another quote from Arun Gupta. I, I sort of want to smoke what he's been smoking because he's really writing pretty uh, unequivocally about this. So this is what he wrote again after the midterms. He said, two years in, liberals are like terrified peasants fleeing the four horsemen of the apocalypse, frantically trying to claw their way into the holy cathedral of elections, believing God will save them. Your God has abandoned you. It's time to get organized, get in the streets, not give an inch, and fight relentlessly, not because your life depends on it, but because everyone and everything you hold dear does. And Arun's not an anarchist, <laughs> but I, I think he's drawn the sort of some of the right conclusions out of this uh, episode that we just lived through in, over the last few months with the midterms, which <laughs> brings us into resistance. And Cindy, you've, you've alluded to this already at the beginning of, of this conversation, but about how people are feeling down and dealing with grief, clearly in the aftermath of the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre and the shooting of, of black folks in Kentucky, which could have been a lot worse because that individual wanted to go into a black church and shoot up a lot more folks but wasn't able to. We've been dealing with uh, grief, and you recently wrote a piece in Truth Out about our grief being a starting point in the fight against fascism. So share a bit more about, about what you mean by that and what inspired you to, to share those views. Yeah, um, I, I feel like that's almost, like I said, I've been traveling around a lot this year and kind of opening up space for people to talk about all the losses that they feel like they're facing right now from structural forces. And it feels like it's getting, I mean, it's been remarkably bad for a long time for a lot of people, but I feel like it's getting palpably worse again. So um, 
when I was just recently traveling around for three weeks, the first week um, that I was going around was the Kavanaugh debates and the immensity of sorrow over people having their loss of their bodily autonomy because of sexual assault and rape um, and um, was just uh, really evident. And then the, the week after that, the UN re- report came out on the fact that we have as humans maybe 12 years left to end capitalism so we can save humanity and a lot of the rest of um, um, the ecosystem. And um, the third week I went um, through Charlottesville and a lot of that region where people have been under near kind of constant um, um, emotional and physical assault from fascists um, and in talking to a lot of people, just hearing a lot about how many sort of um, emotional but also physical attacks there have been um, repetitively was uh, really struck me. And, um, and every time I, 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 I don't know. And then when Pittsburgh happened, I mean, I'm, I'm not a religious Jew, but I feel culturally Jewish and have understood that anti-Semitism is one of the categories that fascism um, is fueled by and, and uses a lot in its ideology along with all sorts of other uh, anti-blackness, anti-Muslims, anti-immigrants, anti-women. <laughs> um, but I think um, for me, Pittsburgh just felt um, it sort of personally touched me um, in ways too. And I had just happened to have been in Pittsburgh a couple days beforehand. So um, talking to my friends about the organizing work they were doing, and then they switched into organizing because some of them are also Jewish, switched into organizing and grieving after um, that latest um, bombing and um, or uh, murders, excuse me. And uh, yeah, and so I guess why I've been really struck by this category of, of, of focusing on structural loss and grief and mourning is because it seems like increasingly over the past few years, I'm um, not just to put the blame on Trump, but on the shift globally to a more of a fascistic world and, and what's happening with climate catastrophe and large, large scale devastation from different um, hurricanes and things. And, um, and also just the shift economically to where most people can barely afford to survive because of what's how capital is moving, um, consolidating itself in a few people in the, in, in the major hearts of the major cities. So um, increasingly, I just feel like it's, it's becoming so just clear that almost everybody is, is, is suffering under the weight of um, profound sense of, of grief at, at all the, the losses we're bombarded with on a daily basis from loss of home, um, loss of someone been murdered by a cop, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and yet we live in a society where, you know, especially since Trump got elected and there was a sort of a rise, which there needed to be of folks focusing on anti-fascist work that kind of quickly turned into a kind of, you know, we need to go fight. We need to be, you know, out in the streets punching Nazis. And, um, I'm, it's not a critique of the need to fight Nazis on many terrains. Um, it's more just a critique of um, the kind of profound shift, um, kind of away from um, knowing that we actually have to focus on both, like fighting and feeling at the same time. And and then I've watched a lot within the circles I'm in, which is anarchists and other radical circles, is watching people hold that pain inside and think they need to be tough and think they need to be like a warrior and fight and not express how they're feeling, not express that they're scared or, um, yeah, feeling despair, feeling hopeless. And so there's also been a really profound loss of like a lot of, even including within anarchist circles, but 
much more widely, loss of um, a lot of increase in people deciding to take their own lives or engaging in a lot more um, use of substances to a point of abusing themselves and a whole bunch of other ways. And and so I don't know, partially the reason I've been focusing on thinking about how we have to like both like mourn and organize is is to do to really grapple with the whole of what we're facing, which is that we all are collectively facing a profound amount of despair, a possibility of anything being different, a profound amount of fear, um, sorrow, all these other emotions. And the reason to actually share those is every time I've seen people do that, it opens up the space of power. Um, I feel like partially when we don't, we pretend we don't feel or don't have emotions, we're denying that the world is bad as it is. And when you start talking with a whole bunch of other people about how bad things are, there's a way in which it, it's kind of like lets the pressure off and everyone's like, wow, I thought I was alone. I'm not. <laughs> um, and the power of people realizing they're not alone and realizing that other people are feeling how hard it is. And out of that feeling hard, I've watched time and time again of people um, kind of looking at you and going, wow, maybe together we can do something about it together. Um, and, and part of the answer, which I've been really feeling pretty inspired by where the only place I'm, I feel like I'm feeling a sense of hope these days is watching people that are opening themselves up to both mourning and organizing is realizing that if that means that we have to accentuate the ways we care for each other in, in, and I'm talking care really large in ways where we accentuate mutual aid and solidarity um, and yeah, forms of taking care of each other so that people have housing and healthcare and, um, try to be safer from violence and all sorts of other things. So, um, yeah, I just find there's such an intimate link between the two. I'm Pittsburgh showed that. I mean, I was really proud of folks that I know who are Jewish and non-Jewish um, folks there who were just really profoundly sad and decided instead of doing private rituals in their homes, people came and did what's called um, Shiva, which is seven days of mourning in the streets and in public spaces and collectively and that led to a lot of powerful organizing at the same time, because when you gather a lot of people collectively together to talk about what they're upset about, because rage is one of the parts of grief or sorrow and anger and wanting things to be different, is people generally figure out that they can come up with all sorts of more imaginative things to do. Um, one tiny little example I really, really love is some folks I, when I was traveling were talking about how they were feeling really some feminist and queer folks who have all been, I don't, um, you know, targets of, of non-consensual violence on their bodies. Um, we're feeling really powerless when the Kavanaugh hearings were happening and we're like, oh, we could do it. We could do a demo. We could do a rally. We could put up some posters. And they just were feeling like none of those things seem to have any, do anything anymore. Like we could be in the streets all the time, but so what? I'm, I'm not really so interested in just sort of a vague call to people to get in the streets um, because we need to me to be, thinking of other ways to self-determine and self-organize. And they did this thing where they decided to ask if anyone needed care packages where they live. And they instantly got like something like overwhelming number of them. They had to actually say stop at a certain point because they got something like 50 people and each one, they asked them what they needed and um, they pulled these together and they took them individually to people's homes. And then they got to know, and there were 50 people they didn't know before um, mostly female queer folks. And they told me it was a range of things that people needed. Um, some people needed water because they didn't have enough money to pay for water or their water had been shut off. 
or some people ask for things that just to kind of make them feel less anxiety and a whole bunch of different things, but it's less about what was in each package than they did this very personal thing where they put the packages together and then they met 50 new people through a sense of solidarity and care um, and talking about sort of what next. So what next do we do to build power to have control over our own bodies? Um, and another one of the what next that I saw and heard about a lot when I was traveling recently was a lot of queers and feminists are talking about, you know, we're not going to let the state take away um, people's ability to get abortions. And so people are talking about all sorts of sort of underground, um, you know, networks of um, different techniques that people have used throughout history to allow people to have abortions um, and return of like sort of underground um, and maybe some above ground networks, of those things and, um, and passing along skills and creating new forms of sort of uh, do it ourselves healthcare. Um, and some of that wasn't that wasn't all just coming from anarchists. I, I saw people that were in what we would consider nonprofits talking about it under their breath. They're like, I can't do this with my nonprofit, but I can do this in my own time. And I've just been kind of moved by watching, you know, not just anarchists kind of realize, like, you know, we can't rely on the state because it's not there for us increasingly. I, I, I don't think people are stupid. More and more people are getting that, you know, and. So I don't know. I just I guess that's my the reason I've been looking at, at mourning and and uh, and organizing together and trying to bring them together is not in some instrumental way, but um, the more we talk about what's all impacting us, the more we'll feel empathy with each other, the more we'll see interconnections, and the more I think we'll be able to dream up much more imaginative ways to actually stave off as much loss as we can in ways that right now we get. I think you know most political perspectives including anarchists, are, are, are pretty much just kind of rehashing the same strategies we've used before, and they're not going to work. <laughs> they didn't work against fascism last time, and we need, we need to be more, yeah, we need, to, we need to push ourselves to be more imaginative, and that means getting together, I think, with other people, not just kind of sitting among just ourselves trying to figure that out. Um, and to me, part of that's just getting out there when we feel the intensity of this moment. And, I mean, you know, I don't know, I was just really struck the day after the midterms, even to come back to that, you could just almost feel the heaviness in the air because everybody kind of felt disappointed where I live, no matter what your perspective was, but nobody talked about it. I was kind of really struck by that. I walked around town all day and went to all sorts of public spaces, and it looked clearly like everybody was upset, but no one wanted to just sit down and share their feelings of despair and wishing we could do something else. So it's sort of no wonder that people go back to being like, what the hell, I'll go back and watch Netflix or you know, do something that um, I can control in my life in, instead of organizing. So, long, a long answer, but, um, you know, and I, I think it's a human right thing to do right now. The world's a really, really, really hard place. And all these slogans about, you know, we can make it safe. We can't, we can't promise that at all. That hasn't been true for a long time for a lot of people, but increasingly it's more true for most of humanity that the world is not a safe place. And I really think the only thing we can really we really can begin to promise each other is that through our solidarity we'll try harder to make it safer for each other and try harder to make it more humane for each other and more caring. You know, and we have I that involves us opening up to each other and, and you know the fascists know that we're all in they all have us on a list. We need to now have us 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 on looking at each other and realizing how hard things are. And I actually think that's opening up a lot more spaces. Again on my travels I just saw so many interesting examples of not just radicals, but like what we would consider 
as anarchists, just everyday people, <laughs> um, doing profoundly radical things without it having to have a label on it as radical. But um, the I'll give you one more example, the mutual aid um, um, disaster relief work that's that's gone on. Um, and I, I really want to credit the folks that have been pushing that hard under the label mutual aid disaster relief and other other examples um, who've been trying to get people to think what happens when climate catastrophe hits your region. Um, but in the um, North Carolina region, I was pass- passing through there right pretty soon afterward and um, was talking to some anarchists and they were, I, I was asking them about, cause I'd heard that some folks had flown airplanes into a whole bunch of towns that were completely cut off and FEMA wasn't going in. The government wasn't, no one was going in. They were just basically abandoned um, because of flooded waters. And, um, and one of the anarchists said, yeah, yeah, that was, that was, I, I, I helped organize the airplanes, but it, it was just about like 80 or a hundred people that were just people that wanted to fly airplanes. And that person said it was a total mix of people that just happened to own airplanes and the whole from left to right spectrum. Um, and they were just kind of excited about flying airplanes and helping neighbors in a region that they lived in. Um, they weren't thinking about it as an anarchist act, but, um, I think that really changes you when you work in solidarity with each other to go into spaces where you see that state and capital have abandoned people and you see people as real people because you're actually there talking to them and interacting with them. I think that that changes people through that, through that process. And, you know, it's no wonder that those, one of the things about this place called the United States, it used to have a long history of a lot of voluntary associations like volunteer fire departments. And, you know, it, you have a community that had a volunteer fire department, which I saw a lot of when I was going through back roads in my travels. You know, you go answer a fire, it might be someone you know in your small town, and you're going to feel for them, and you're going to take care of them for much longer than if you're just like a paid bureaucrat in the fire department in a major city that has to also bring the police along, and you don't know anyone, and you just do a job, and you leave, and maybe while you're there, you harass them because they don't have papers or some other thing. But, yeah, we've really moved away from sort of face-to-face social life and neighborliness and caring for each other. And um, I think a lot of the things that anarchists right now are doing with other people who aren't anarchists are, are starting to point back towards sort of a, a, a mutual aid solidarity care. That's, that's, that's not about charity. Um, that to me, to me is, is the, is kind of the only beginning answer of how we can like, self-organize against the, the the increasingly sort of vicious times. Uh, that was a huge reflection there, Cindy. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing mm-hmm. that. No, no, not not at all. That's not a problem at all. And it's sort of a basis to start a whole other show. I'd I'd love to have you on again to to get into that quite a bit more. Um, we've we've taken up a lot of time here. I guess I I just want to get into one more topic because uh, you know grief, despair. Anger, rage, and we all agree these are these are clear starting points for how we fight back. But one counterpoint to that that's being pushed on us all the time, but particularly now, is this idea that somehow we need to push back against an uncivil president and an uncivil political ideology that he represents with civility. And I want to push through that a bit. And I think one one thing that was in the news, I guess it's probably the last topic we have time to get into 
was um, just this, this just happened yesterday. Tucker Carlson, who's the the host of uh, a host at Fox News, somebody who white nationalists love, especially some of the more nuanced white nationalists, because they understand that because Tucker is coded in his uh, in his language that he he's a lot more effective than you know if just an out and out neo Nazi was hosting Fox News. Uh, anyways, protesters in the D.C. area came out and protested outside his house, and there's just been a huge counter reaction to that. The Smash D.C. Uh, Twitter. Uh, page has been kicked off of Twitter temporarily. There's been all kinds of people, including Stephen Colbert, who've made calls for more civility. This is wrong. Uh, Andrew, you've, you've sort of broken down why someone like, like Tucker should be, should be taken on. And I know you've had a lot of thoughts, and probably you too, Cindy, about whether civility is anything that we should consider in any way whatsoever in dealing with uh, some of the, the horrible realities that you just outlined, Cindy. So Talk a bit about this Tucker Carlson thing, uh, uh, Andrew, and maybe how it relates to uh, you know how we should be fighting back or not. Well, I think first of all, for for this society to to speak of civility while it you know poisons people with water and you know does everything that we've been talking about, you know, in 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 uh, everyday industrial capitalist society. I mean, you know, none of that is civil. And, uh, you know, this idea that people need to be civil and nice, I mean, that just acquiesces to this idea that, you know, there's just a marketplace of ideas and we just need to find the best ones. And, you know, we all have, you know, an equal footing on, you know, the stage of politics and making decisions. I mean, we all know that's not true. You know, there are forces that have power and wealth and access to agency in this world. And most of us don't, um, but I mean, as far as Tucker Carlson, I mean, I think if you go back a couple of months in the United States in, in the fall, there was a period where there was a, a series of scandals that um, kind of connected uh, mainstream kind of Trumpism with the alt-right. And the first one of those was that there was a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Scott Greer, I believe, who who was fired from Tucker Carlson's. He has a website called The Daily Caller. Um, it's a lot like Ben Shapiro has The Daily Wire. You know, it's just kind of like one of these clickbait, uh, very short, very bad design, you know, just kind of like articles. They usually kind of talk about stuff that's really just geared towards, uh, you know, conservatives or alt-light people. But it's it's designed to kind of match pace with Breitbart. So it's, it's very kind of edgy. Um, it talks a lot about white identity politics stuff. Um, and they also host and have writers from a lot of, you know, out and out white nationalists. But anyway, this guy, Scott Greer, it turned out he was exposed as, um, moonlighting as another writer, uh, with Richard Spencer's, uh, journal Radix. So he was fired and he was only one of the latest uh, white nationalists that have been outed at the Daily Caller and, and fired, actually. And we can talk about some of those. But it's just interesting because, you know, continuing forward, like there was another uh, Trump speechwriter that uh, he went to a white nationalist conference that Spencer was a part of back in 2016. And he was fired from his position. And uh, it's just funny because, you know, there are people that have gone to that same conference for years, years and years and years and presented, and they write for the Daily Caller. And, you know, there's just so many instances of, you know, a, another person, uh, somebody within the Trump administration, uh, he got some flack because a gentleman by the name of Peter Brimlow uh, works at a white nationalist nativist uh think tank website called VDARE. VDARE actually stands for Virginia Dare, which is supposedly the first white child that was born on American soil. But um, 
this guy showed up at his birthday party and he got a lot of flack for it and he disavowed Peter Brimlow. I mean, Peter Brimlow writes for the Daily Caller. He has an article on the Daily Caller you can go read right now about why people need to embrace uh, the white nationalist uh, Republican in Iowa, Steve King, and why, you know, he, he's such a great guy. So it's not just that Tucker Carlson has embraced white nationalist talking points and really mainstream them. I mean, he's really given a lot of them a home. I mean, there's just so many instances of different people that have come out of white nationalism or kind of on the sides of it that are writing for these various publications that go to these, you know, paleo conservative alt-right white nationalist um, meetings and, and uh, conferences. And they're writing for the daily caller. Um, He has groups like fair, I've mentioned before on this program, you know, on his program, lots of times talking about their analysis of immigration. Um, You know, he's had like alt-right trolls. He had somebody uh, named Ian Miles Chong, who's again, like a (laughs) alt-right troll that's been on alt-right podcasts with neo-Nazis. He had him on his show to talk about it's going down before he no longer works at the daily caller, but for months, you know, he was writing about Antifa and you know the left and like this is who these people are attracting and i just think it's funny that you know you can literally have somebody in the trump administration that will get fired for you know doing what a lot of these people that are working around this person are 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 doing you know every day and they're just pumping this stuff out and, um, you know, like this guy, Scott Greer, that got fired. I mean, he literally wrote a book called No Campus for White Men. You know, it was on Fox News talking about it. And, uh, you know, suddenly because he's connected to Richard Spencer, he's person non grata. But, I mean, when he was up there talking about his ideas, I mean, they were eating it up. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think the the period that we're in is that the alt-right in the U.S. has been – really beaten hard you know they're in disarray uh even sort of the the militia maga alt light proud boy types i mean like they just had they tried to do a series of demonstrations um before the election they were horrible failures in tacoma they had 10 people show up tacoma washington's like a small industrial working class town outside of uh olympia they had 10 people show up on their side and they had 100 anti-fascists show up in LA, they didn't even have anybody counter protest them because they had 10 people and the people that showed up ended up trying to fight each other with Trump flagpoles because they were trying to say that the other side was connected to this neo-Nazi group that, you know, they're just fighting with each other. So, but, but at the same time, while this is happening, like, like the state is opening its arms to these ideas and it's really kind of like being sucked up into the state and mainstreamed through stuff like Tucker Carlson's show. And there's really just been, you know, like Trump came out as a, you know, called himself a nationalist. Um, You know, they're talking about literally gutting the 14th amendment, ending birthright citizenship, you know, cornerstone of ensuring that African-Americans um, you know, are enfranchised within the, you know, United States project. So, I mean, they're doing stuff that white nationalists have, have talked about and fought for, for literally decades. So, I mean, it makes sense that the alt-right, which was already kind of, you know, a bunch of clowns to begin with is, is kind of destroyed. But at the same time, uh, in terms of like the culture 
and seen a mimic and a recuperation of themselves within the state, I mean, they've totally got to that point. So I think that after the Pittsburgh shooting, you know, you saw like uh, organized groups of like um, Jews, like going and protesting uh, GOP offices, like in New York, people were getting arrested for camping out in front of the GOP office where Gavin McInnes spoke. So there was a there was a drive to connect white nationalism to the state, which I think makes total and complete sense. Like when Trump showed up in Pittsburgh, there were thousands of people out on the streets. There were so many people that Trump's motorcade literally had to turn around to go the opposite way because they couldn't go into the crowd. I mean, there were so many people out there, you know, blocking the streets, filling it up, screaming at Trump. So, I mean... <clears throat> And I think that was a really pivotal moment. And I think that that moment in itself has now been completely swept away by the midterms, of course. But to just go back to that, the feeling was is that, you know, we basically went from unite the right to really understanding that the, that the enemy who had sucked all that stuff up was now was now in the government completely. You know, Richard Spencer's long gone. You know, Trump, Trump and Tucker who are left. Um, and I think that, you know, people went to Tucker Carlson's house and they protested against him. I mean, there's a, there's videos online of it. Now Fox News has come out and said that they broke his door, that there's a crack on his door, and that somebody was screaming about a pipe bomb or something like that, and his kids were afraid. I mean, there's photos and videos of the door. There's no, none damage done to the door. Somebody made a reference to... Uh, the MAGA bomber. I mean, Tucker Carlson literally laughed about George Soros getting a bomb, and yet here he is freaking out that 12 people came to his house and stood outside of his house with signs. I mean... But it's the reaction from know, it's the reaction from some liberals that are out of control, you know, like Stephen Colbert, Alyssa Milano, of course, all the Democrats are denouncing this. It's sort of a, a marginalization of a certain tactic. That, well, uh, I think what the, what that Maxine Waters was it, encouraging a while ago. Well, I think what they – I mean this is where you know the, the center and the right are completely different. The right will never – will never really disavow its militants. It will never – it will never come out and say, oh, you know, those people that burn abortion clinics, like, you know, we want nothing to do with them. Like we don't want anything to do with the, you know, the Richard Spencers or the Daily Stormers of the world. I mean they know what's going on. I mean if you look at – Go look at Rick, uh, Tucker Carlson's like stream while he's talking, like on YouTube. Just watch the comments. It's all like gas the Jews, fourteen eighty eight. I mean, they know this stuff. So, but I mean, they they make no attempts. I mean, like Trump to like yesterday, literally, basically told um, somebody from CNN, uh, you know, that's why you guys got bombed, you know, by the MAGA bomber. You know, he oh. was saying like. That's why you're the enemy of the people. Yeah. You know, that's why you deserve to be bombed, basically. That's, you know, and again, like, and you were saying, like, all these, you know, centrist pundits were, you know, trying to go out of their way. That's because what they're trying to say is, like, look, we, we're willing to get rid of our fringe, not like you bad people. Um, and I mean, that just, you know, not like we're associated with them, you know. We're not entitled to the center. You know, we have nothing to do with them. But still, it just, you know, shows uh, where they're at. And I think that this, this is a moment where everybody needs to understand that, like, look, these people are willing to throw you under the bus. Like, they they want a, a minuscule 
amount of seats in a midterm election that, you know, and now that they feel like they're so emboldened that they're going to make a big deal about 12 people standing outside of some rich guy's house. I mean, literally Tucker Carlson is the heir to the Swanson family foods, uh, family fortune. Like he's a very, very wealthy man. Like he's going to be okay. (laughs) His dad used to run the, he was the head of the PBS corporation. I mean, he's, he went to a, a private high school and college. If you look it up online, it looks like, uh, where Harry Potter went to school in the movies. I mean, you know, he's going to be okay. There's nothing bad that's going to happen to Tucker Carlson anytime soon. But I mean, the fact that they're really choosing this is, is, is telling because, you know, they want to go after the social movements just as much as the right does. And I think that the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, just because these people, if they get into office or if we have another neoliberal president, it doesn't mean they're not going to go after us. I mean, we saw what Obama did to Occupy. I mean, maybe they won't make a big deal about it as they do on Fox News, but, you know, they're still going to come for us. I think the other part is when, I don't know, I, I, I keep really wanting to get back to it. I think we're shifting into something that looks more like fascism. Maybe there'll be a better term for it at some point here. And almost always when things move in a in a really authoritarian direction is the people in the vast majority and the people the people in the middle that aren't the 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 people that are going to fight it on you know the the radicals that will fight the rise of fascism on one side and then the fascists on the other for whatever term we want to use but the vast majority in the, of the people in the middle tend to do nothing or call for calm or you know passively or actively support those on the, the far to fascistic right. And um, we're seeing that more and more is like, I really appreciate, you know, like the shift from like, okay, folks that were doing anti-fascist work did a really, really good organizing job of, of getting um, a lot of the sort of ridiculously um, looking uh, neo-Nazi types off the streets. <laughs> but um, increasingly they're in, in the structures of power and look, look respectable and so there also has to be a politics that's doesn't doesn't isn't respectable toward those people isn't civil toward those people and uh i really thank you for pointing out uh, andrew this um the protests which we could call protests that um various jews did in and others um in new york and pittsburgh but again those that first week of sitting in that that wasn't that was also shiba you you sit together for a week and so people were doing both um um, a tradition of, of grieving their dead and organizing and fighting at the same time, which I think we can, and and being uncivil. Um, and it wasn't just radicals who were doing that. So, I we're not we're not gonna we have no chances of of um, I don't know. I just feel like this is a really intense crossroads moment where um, there are a lot a lot of people that are newly politicized, and I want them. In, I want us who are, are radicals and have been around for a while to be like. Um, helping with all sorts of skills and strategy and tactics and organizing efforts and also being more creative with them to think about ways we can be um, more uncivil. And so some of the, another thing that to me, I don't know if it'll happen, but uh, um, you know, the, the calls to uh, both from the vigilante um, um, folks on the border, the Southern border um, of uh, the United States and the military um seem to be arming themselves to have a standoff with the um, people who are um, walking hundreds and thousands of miles to, to come across that border. Um, 
the, the, the caravan. And um, I've seen increasingly groups um, from all sorts of sides, but in, including a lot of faith-based groups, talk about, you know, we're going to go down there and meet them too. And a whole bunch of other people, we need to be uncivil in a whole variety of diversity of tactics when there's, when there's, you know, not just what we perceive to be the threat, which is the, which, or not we, the anarchists, but not what, what people perceive to be the threat, which is elections, but the threat that happens on the day-to-day level, um, people being uncivil when, um, you know, the far right of the military try to stop people from crossing the border. Um, you know, what is that kind of, that's to me the more interesting non-civility. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, the protesting out people outside someone's house is, is, you know, a good thing to do too, but I also feel like part of it has to be where we're actually tangibly, um, the, the non-civility is actually also a, a form of, of taking care of people that are at risk um, and ourselves at risk of uh, extreme um, violence. <laughs> and increasingly that is extreme violence. It's like, I don't know, I was, again, to go to go back to Charlottesville when I went through there, it's like, you know, there's, there are people about to go to trial on November 26th that have to sit in the courtroom with the person that tried to murder them with a car, who's a fascist. And very few of them want to be in that courtroom, much less testify against him, much less have to face. And there's no, you know, the reality that I talked to many, many people that were at that demonstration and they were like, you know, we don't have the capacity yet. We go to these things and we're being uncivil in the street or we're helping defend a neighborhood, which is what was happening and celebrating at that moment. And then, you know, fascists with a car decide to run people over and murder them. How do we create uncivility that also tries to have each other's backs so far fewer of us get hurt is to me the more interesting question or an equally interesting question, I should say. Cindy, when you were describing, you know, all those centrists that in some way or another are accommodating themselves to this, um, this fascist environment, the the word for me that comes to mind is appeasement and appeasers. You know, like yeah. basically Nancy yeah. Pelosi, if if she's going along the same path, the path that she's indicating right now about bipartisanship and the rest of it, which is she's just basically the equivalent of a Neville Chamberlain. Um, no, I know. Yeah, but that's who. I mean, I don't know if you look at the history of like all, all sorts of times when there's been mass. It's switched to mass forms of genocide. It's been the people in the middle, just the people, you know, you can kind of understand the people that are on the far right that are saying they want to, you know, go out and, 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 you know, kill the Jews or kill black, all those people who are, are, are out and out, like saying they're fascist and saying they hate different groups, but it's the kind of people in the middle that scare me almost. Absolutely. More. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're just going to be like, wow, huh, yeah. if my neighbor gets carted off. I can have their apartment. I mean, that, if you look at all sorts of you know, and I think we're starting to really see that. And, you know, we can call it civility, non-civility. So for me, that's maybe, I feel like part of it is we get stuck in using the same language that we're given. So I, I'm, for me, it's more interesting for us to to try to, to try to put out a different way of framing what's happening. And it's less to me about civility versus non-civility, but like, which side are you on? Are you in the solidarity of, you know, I really like this, some of the, the wording that came out after the Pittsburgh um massacre, you know, was like solidarity is our only safety was one of them. And, you know, so how do we, how do we form like different forms of direct action that are about a profound solidarity that keeps more of us safe? That's Mm -hmm. the most interesting question, not just doing direct action for the sake of like looking cool or, which is, I I didn't mean to, you know, (laughs) or, um, (laughs) or just, or just the sake of just kind of like playing the terrain of like, they're going to be, 
you know, kind of annoying to us, we're going to be annoying to them, which we can do that, but can we do something more interesting at the same time? (laughs) You know, we're going to, um, we're going to treat each other better while it's happening. We're going to take care of the people that are hurt better while it's happening. Um, and we're going to follow through afterward and continue to, to lend, you know, you know, I mean, what's, what's, I, I don't know, you know, the examples I've been personally like been really struck with, which with the caravan walking toward the U S border is the incredible examples at a whole bunch of different places where they stopped different places. And I think it was the night before Halloween or something where someone decided to use a field and show all all of them a film so they could rest for a while and other places that have given people food and and some places shelter. And, you know, there's, again, I I don't, you know, religious institutions aren't the be all end all. I'm not specifically excited about hierarchical religious structures, but there's been a lot of like faith-based spaces that have decided to actually like house people right now that are facing deportation, you know, and far, far more people need to be doing that. <laughs> That's the kind of uncivility. I don't, so it's a civility is not even such an interesting word. It's what are we going to do materially, tangibly to like, to, to not be civil to a fascist regime. Well, um, I know we got to get beyond the frame of civility versus uncivility, but let this uh, Canadian say "fuck civility" because honest, honestly, <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a it's a religion it's a religion fucking up here. Um, that's and that's the one thing I like about some aspects of how organizing takes place in the states, where there isn't a default idea that somehow you have to be polite or whatever. Um, yeah, no. I know it's a it's a really <laughs> simple point, but honestly, um, with this overreaction to just a really simple tactic of of targeting the home of someone who's just basically enabled or i mean andrew laid it out there it wasn't just enabling he's an active participant in the normalization yeah. of white nationalism uh yeah you know. well, it wasn't even targeting his home i mean no i just protested outside his house for for about I mean, and again like this is something like you know you, you look on it's right. going down i mean there's been unions that protest outside of ceos homes i mean people protest outside of i mean in michigan boxes, people, how, yeah, people no, have yeah, protests yeah. outside of you know prison officials homes i mean this is what yeah. people do you know they said yeah. like look we know where you live you know, we're putting you on notice. It doesn't mean we're going to come inside your house and poop on your puppy and kick your grandma in the face. Right. <laughs> you know, it means that, yeah. like, look, like, you know, you know, you're part of a human community. You live in a neighborhood. You're advocating fascism and white supremacy. And, you know, we, too, live in a human community and we're going to stand up and do something about it. And, um, you know, I think, again, it's, it's the center center trying to to win uh cheap points and you know reposition itself as the as really the party of law and order you know we can do it better than than the republicans can the republicans they do it bad because they make everybody afraid and everybody gets crazy and sends mail bombs you know we'll do it the the better way because you know we have enough people to make you think that you know we care about everybody and we have enough representation um, you know, to make everybody yeah. passive and so on and so forth. Some of the things that have inspired me are people that are like, um, um, I think part of it's just like, again, so many newly radicalized people that are, um, would be glad to be, um, uncivil in those kind of ways, like showing up at people's houses or being more, you know, doing things that aren't, are exactly what you were talking about, Andrew. But, um, yeah, I did a bunch of organizing last year where a lot of folks that were in, um, the DSA that, um, they were saying that they were scared because they had never done any of that kind of direct action before. And so um, anarchists spent 
where I live, spent a long time having conversations and doing trainings and figuring out ways that they could like self-organize in structures with four or five people they trusted and small groups and blah, 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 but come to a, a big collective action. And so I think, again, it behooves us to think about, you know, not everyone's just going to leap from being newly politicized to suddenly like calling themselves Antifa <laughs> or or going and the first thing you do is doing something that's like a really, um, um, you know, powerful direct action. Um, even some of the folks I talked to in Charlottesville, they said a lot of people showed up to that demonstration by themselves, never having been to a demonstration. And they left not having anyone to look out for them, not having anyone to talk to afterward, not even understanding, like, if that was the first thing you went to, you know, without any. So I've been really inspired by anarchists who've been spending a lot of time with people that are newer to these kind of, um, you know, uncivil tactics and more creative forms of direct action and more creative um, non-electoral politics about spending time and working through and talking through and um, offering skills and training. Not that anarchists know everything, but there's many people that have had like a lot of experience in in those forms of things. And um, I think a lot of the mistakes that have happened this year um, that aren't about the state repressing us have been that there's been a lot of demonstrations where, um, um, you know, it shouldn't be the case that when there's, we're going to demonstrations where there's going to be large scale state repression and fascists showing up with um, armed that people shouldn't be going alone. People shouldn't be going without ever having, um, talked about what it means to go to those demonstrations. Um, and so I just, I don't know, I, I don't know anything about this group, but I heard um, someone was talking to me about a group that inspired them in, in the South called um, the Holler Network, which Andrew, you probably know more about, but uh, instead of calling themselves um, anti-fascist, they're people that are using uh, a geographical um, term in a region to reach out to people so that they can organize with people that aren't already convinced of their politics. And I think we just need to do more and more of that right now, because I, I guess I feel like we have very increasingly limited time span as the sort of rush toward a more fascistic um, uh, regime happens here. Um, and in the United States, I know, Jackie, it's one thing to romanticize people not being like as polite here, but I think people are so used to people not being polite here that they're more startled when people are actually spend time with them and, and are and are good to them and actually offer forms of solidarity and care. So maybe again for us to think about like how do we try to bring more and more people into a more like um, anti-authoritarian um, forms of self-determination, self-organization, um, you know, mutual aid solidarity kind of politics um, as fast as we can in ways that are also um, allow them to um, consensually and voluntarily go to things with enough collective smarts among us that we can make sure that um, fewer people get hurt or fewer people are going on their own. Um, yes, to me, that's the challenge. I think we're, people are really good at here and not being, not being nice, we should, not being civil. It's just, we need a lot more people who are willing to engage in, um, in all sorts of creative uh forms of not going along with this regime um, that also point toward a different kind of world. Um, I think the far right had a, a really, you know, to me, I, I can sort of, I don't understand, but uh, I think the appeal of why, you know, the sort of far right has appealed to people is that it, it offers as awful as it is. It offers a sense of community and people taking care of each other in a world where most people feel abandoned and, um, you know, they do it with values that we hate <laughs> because they are values that are, you know, um, misogynistic, uh, racist, et cetera, et cetera, but um, are, 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 are not being, I know I keep harping this, but I think are not being civil has to be about being much more caring toward each other while we 
are far more uncivil toward uh, fascism. Yeah, I guess I, I guess what I'm getting at is uh, we need to be authentic and not fake. And I feel like politeness and civility yep. is a way for people to be oh, fake. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so listen, Cindy and Andrew, we've been ahead for a while. Um, and obviously, we've we've opened up a lot of paths that we should explore more and more. And one of the whole points of having uh, this media project, No Borders Media, is to sort of reckon with the moment that we're in. But uh, we only have so much time right now. So let's wrap things up. Uh, maybe you, you both of you have final thoughts before we, we finish up today's show. Uh, maybe we'll start with uh, you, Andrew. Uh, sure. You know, I think, again, we're, you know, as Cindy brought up, you know, we're in a period where a lot of people are scared and there's a bunch of scary stuff happening. It's, you know, it's really stressful. And, you know, we all have lives and families and we have to pay bills and all that stuff. I think um, at the same time, I think, you know, the next year in the United States is going to be very intense. We know that, uh, like, the Keystone XL uh, pipeline battle is probably going to be really huge, maybe on the same level as Standing Rock. It's going to bring a lot of people in. Already a lot of tribes and groups are already mobilizing to get started now. Um, and there's obviously everything that's happening um, already. Uh, so I think that, you know, now, especially like as we go into the winter and, and the holidays, like now is a good time to like check in with each other and have good discussions and reflect and you know build and you know get ready for the this everything that's that lays ahead um you know i don't want to say too much but igd and crime think and people at mutually disaster relief have been talking about um calling for something on january 20th last year we did a call for a week of uh, events that were kind of aimed at reflections and discussions and conferences and people basically talking about the road ahead and also talking about supporting people, uh, J20 defendants and so on and so forth. And it was a huge success. And we're talking about doing a version of that uh, this coming January 20th. But kind of in line with some of the stuff we've been talking about, the 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 theme would be uh, survival programs and people trying to meet the crisis of everyday life and capitalism with the organizing and the mutual aid projects that we're doing and trying to not only expand those, but also make them, if they don't exist already, make them um, answer to just everything that's happening all around us where capitalism is crumbling and people's needs aren't being met. And what would it mean to really answer that crisis with our own self-organization and, uh, you know, desire to create mutual aid. So we're formulating that right now and we're excited about what that's going to look like soon. Cindy, any final thoughts? Right. No, I just wanted, I want to just uh, add my uh, appreciation to what Andrew's talking about and say I think there's no need to wait before till after the holidays or for a special week or till some um, um, uh, a group of any of us anarchists um, ask people to do that. I think um, I know there's a lot of examples already going on pretty much everywhere you go. I was really struck when I was traveling. Anarchists, they're every town I went to, small or large, there are anarchists that are organizing, there are non-anarchists that are organizing around principles of, of self-organization, mutual aid, solidarity, autonomy, um, people having each other's backs in, in, in real material and emotional ways. And I think we get so used to thinking about that only happens if we see it on social media and it's already happening. 
So I just want to encourage people wherever they live um, to look and turn to the people in their communities and get off, <laughs> get off social media um, and talk to each other more and create spaces to have, to like, to start envisioning and start doing those projects. Um, in a lot of communities, there's been a lot of different projects um, that revolve around mutual aid that don't necessarily have that name. And the name is to me less important than, than how we're actually treating each other right now in terms of social relationships and, and social forms of social organization that, that point toward a vastly different world than this, a world without fascism. So um, I just want encouragement that it's already happening and we don't need to, you know, I, I, I think I'm feeling my fear is that everybody keeps going, well, I'll wait till after the holidays or I'll wait for this week of action or I'll wait till the summer when it's warm. And, and it, it's, it again is counterintuitive when the times feel so heavy and hard, but the more we talk to each other about how heavy and hard they are, the more I think we'll realize that through forms of mutual aid is actually the way to, to get through it both emotionally and um, material and, and, and physically. And that we should start doing it every day, not, not on just certain days. So yeah, us offering a, a, a vision of a different world. Um, I'm, I don't know. I, I heard some one of the candidates say it on the other night after they won that another world is possible. And oh, I know that God. A lot of folks. No, it made me sick because it was like that came out of a social movement that was actually like anti-capitalist and causing a whole bunch of um, shifts in 20 years ago, almost the 20-year anniversary of that. And um, But for most people that have been born in that intervening period, they don't think anything else is possible. They don't even think more than a few years is possible. So I think it's up to us to actually take back that sentiment and show that there's possibility in the present. Yeah. And, you know, I would say, too, that like while we're talking about mutual aid and sort of these like positive prefigurative things, I mean, you know, we're not going to be out of the streets anytime soon. I mean, like stuff is still going to happen. And I think that, again, we need to always look more and more like what is happening on, you know, the real grassroots level, like. You know, screw whatever Stephen Colbert is talking about or whatever the latest, you know, trending thing, you know, in the center is like, you know, or whatever Trump wants us necessarily to like freak out about. Like, let's really think about, you know, what people are mobilizing around, what people are upset about, what are they talking about just, you know, in everyday life, because that's where it's going to really explode. Well, I know for me, uh, part of the reason I... I do this uh, show and put together No Borders Media is just to talk to people and get inspired about resistance, that grassroots resistance that you were talking about, Andrew, and, uh, um, and you too, Cindy. And I guess my final thought is uh, just previewing some of the things I'll be talking about in the future because I'm lining up an interview right now with the folks who are behind Outlive Them for a world without pogroms, for a future without fascism. They're currently undertaking a oh, few cool. days of action in the aftermath of the Pittsburgh uh, synagogue massacre, uh, linking, of course, uh, attacks on Jews historically and, and more recently with attacks on other minority groups. And uh, and I'll be talking with my patch, Andrew. Um, I reached out to him. My patch, so Cindy, if you don't know, is uh, a young anti-fascist activist who was based in San Antonio. He was there when far-right thugs came early in the morning during an abolish ICE action, and he stood his ground there but later on, he was grabbed by ICE and, and eventually deported, and he's down in Mexico now. But I'll be able wow. to talk to him, and uh, clearly he's on the front line of dealing with this crap. Um, but he made the point. Uh, he saw posters that went up in New York um, uh, supporting Mapache, and he's like, you know, solidarity is our weapon. Solidarity keeps us safe. 
So it's on that note, I guess. Uh, there's so much more we could talk about. It's on that note, I guess, we'll end things up. Andrew from It's Going Down and Cindy, who is uh, an author, including the author of Rebellious Morning, The Collective Work of Grief. Thanks for uh, speaking with us uh, today on No Borders Media. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Thank you. You were just listening to a No Borders Media News Roundup featuring Cindy Milstein, editor of Rebellious Morning, The Collective Work of Grief, Andrew of It's Going Down, and Jackie Singh of No Borders Media. No Borders Media is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months. Could you imagine a politician calling a woman a dog? Do you want to stay in the kitchen? Is that where you belong? How do you picture the perfect leader? How do you want him to be? He promoted the use of torture and killed families. Did your mama come from Mexico? Papa come from Palestine? Sticking all through Syria, crossing all the borderlines. Let other people in. Listen to your women. Stop killing black children. Make a man.